last week we began our Advent series looking at Christmas or Advent through a variety of different lenses. Last week we looked at Christmas through the lens of the skeptic. Uh, And we looked at John the Baptist's father, who was the original Christmas skeptic. He was not at all convinced uh, that God could pull this miracle off, uh, and yet God showed him that he absolutely uh, could bring salvation, and that uh, his son, John, was going to be part of that. This morning, we're going to consider Christmas through the lens of those who feel marginalized, for those who feel that they're on the periphery. Uh, We want to consider Uh, that in a couple of different ways, but let's start with a working definition of marginalized. Marginalized is a person, a group, or a concept treated as insignificant or peripheral. That's That's Webster's working definition. I think that speaks directly to it. And then Tim Keller, who's a wonderful theologian, he's a great thinker in our generation, said this, if the church does not identify with the marginalized, it will itself become marginalized. This is God's poetic justice. God calls his people to enter into the brokenness of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that includes those who are overlooked, to those who, according to the world standard, are low on the pecking order, so to speak, and and of little consequence to those who are in power. The gospel calls us to look at the world completely differently. So a couple of questions that we want to try to ask ourselves this morning as we study this topic and look at this passage is is personal. Do I see my own significance through Jesus Christ? Because even if you are a person that has some success, if you're doing okay in life, there probably are times where you feel as if you're on the outside looking in. I would imagine that, that most people in this room at one moment or another perhaps feel marginalized themselves. Uh, there's an author, a current day author named Andrew James Pritchett, and he wrote a novel called Sukiyaki, and in the novel he starts out his story this way. I have always been considered a bit of an outsider and a general failure at everything I have put my hand towards. In fact, you might even go so far as to say that I'm a, le- that I'm a lesser being of great insignificance. I state this because when writing a story, you should always start the first line off with at least one basic truth. (laughs) So here's the author saying, my life's pretty much worthless. And and that doesn't really, I don't have much, if anything, going for me. And and he seems to be kind of uh, celebrating this discovery of his. Uh, You've probably felt that way at one moment or another. You certainly have been around people. So we want to consider this very personally. What is do I, do I see my significance to God because of Christ? The second one is a little more corporate. Do I treat others as insignificant? It's a chance for me to reflect on my own life and how I interact with the people around me. Are there moments or there times when I see folks as less important than Jesus sees them? Do I see people perhaps as an inconvenience instead of those for whom Christ gave his life and therefore I'm to give my care and my love as well? Francis Guillot Uh, was a friend of Pablo Picasso. And she wrote a book called Life with Picasso. And in that book, she writes the following. One day when I went to see him, we were looking at the dust, dancing in a ray of sunlight that slanted in through one of the high windows. He looked at me and said, nobody has any real importance to me. How would you like to be the person that received that comment? As far as I'm concerned, other people are like those little grains of dust floating in the sunlight. It takes only a push of the broom, and out they go. 
I told him I had often noticed this in his dealing with others, that he considered the rest of the world only little grains of dust. But I said, as it happened, I was a little grain of dust, gifted with autonomous movement, and who didn't therefore need a broom. I could go out by myself. (laughs) Good response. But does Picasso perhaps represent my heart at times, where I know there are folks who, according to God's economy and God's kingdom, are of great significance, and yet I pay them little mind. Both of these questions, I believe, are addressed in the text we're going to consider this morning, Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read several different verses in Luke chapter 1. Probably will be easier if you have your Bible to open it, but then follow the scripture reading when we start on the screen and then refer back to your Bible as you go through. We're going to begin this reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Hear the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and he said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And skipping down to verse 31, the angel is still talking to Mary, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then skipping ahead to verse 46 and following where Mary has heard this good news, Uh, she's asked some questions, the angel has responded and affirmed, this is what God's going to do, it's what God's going to do with you and through you, and here is her, her response. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, each one of us uh, battles with the question of significance in our lives, sometimes to a greater extent, sometimes to a lesser extent. Lord, I'm sure that, that pretty much every person in this room at some point or another in life has felt like they're on the outside looking in. They felt they're not of significance. They have felt a, perhaps lost in the shuffle could be because of estranged family relationships. It could simply be because of separation from family. It could be because uh, things that they have tried have failed. Lord, there are a lot of reasons why we feel alienated, while, while we, why we feel marginalized. And then, Lord, there's certainly in this world uh, uh, a very uh, status-centered, wealth-centered uh, sense of a pecking order. And there are, there are literally millions of people 
that are genuinely and truly marginalized for many, many different reasons. Father, I thank you that your kingdom through the Lord Jesus comes to turn all of that upside down, to destroy insignificance, and to give human and spiritual dignity through the gospel of grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we are part of the oppressor, part of the person who maybe we're not actively oppressing, but we're just ignoring. Uh, So Lord, help us to hear that message as well this morning. Father, we don't come here to hear what I have to say about any topic. It just isn't that important. We come here to hear the word of God, and only you can bring that to us. So Lord, it is that for which we pray through your word and through your spirit. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the way we're going to tackle this, uh, I'll give you the sermon in a sentence, is the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, is both royal and utterly common, thereby giving hope and promise to everyone who believes. So we're going to try to unpack that in, the, in this passage this morning with three observations. The first is we're going we're to wrestle with that word common, and we're going to look at, at Mary and who she was, and we're going to see that she's a very, very common you know, kind of -of run-of-the-mill, everyday person. But then we're going to turn our attention to God's eternal plan and to the royalty uh, that is is going to be introduced uh, into this event. And then ultimately, we're going to see as those those two things come together, there's real cause to celebrate. There's real cause to give thanks and to have hope. So what do you do when you celebrate, what do you do when you just get some great news? I, I, I love to burst out into song. Now, the people around me don't like that very much because I have a lousy voice, but I love to sing. And when I'm happy, I just sing and sing and sing. I might do it in the shower. I might do it while I'm cutting the grass. But, you know, we're getting drowned out the sound. But I, I just love to burst into song. That's what we're going to see this morning. What Mary does when she sees the commonness of her life matched with the royal eternal plan of salvation, she breaks out into song, and I think there's something here for each one of us this morning. So first, let's tackle this notion of, of being common. In verses 26 and 27, I, I'm entitling this part of the sermon, A Nobody from Nowhere. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful uh, to Mary. I'm not trying to, to say that she isn't important. But up to this moment, I think that's a pretty fair definition of this person. First of all, she's a young teenage woman. She might be 15 or 16. She might be 17 or 18, but she's a young woman. And in that day and age, in that cultural setting, that's about as insignificant as you could be. Now, ladies, please don't take offense at that. Uh, This is the historical part. Uh, It's the context of the story. Uh, This is how that culture lived. And so you would pass Mary uh, walking down the street. You might say hello to her, but you might not. Uh, she certainly wasn't a person of great importance. So in that sense, you could say uh, she was for sure uh, a person that you could consider marginalized. But also notice what it says, not only uh, the fact that she was young uh, and she was nobody of real importance, but notice where she lives. Uh, the angel from God comes to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Now, uh, you're probably familiar with the term flyover country uh, because apparently you and I live in flyover country. So I found this on the internet. I have no idea why Nebraska's in purple. I, I, are they like the epitome of flyover country more so than everybody else? I'm not exactly sure. I've been to Omaha. It seems like a nice town. Uh, but the, the notion is that, you know, this is the part of the country that isn't as important as, you know, either the, the, the East Coast or the West Coast. Those are the places that are really significant. Well, if that's, 
even remotely true, which I'm not necessarily buying for our wonderful town of St. Louis. Certainly Nazareth was, was flyover country. Galilee, uh, kind of the county, so to speak, in which they lived, was out of the way. Nothing really important ever happened there. Nobody ever said, we got two weeks off of work. Where do you want to go? Let's run straight to Galilee and hang out in Nazareth. It is going to be so much fun. We just won't know what to do with ourselves. Now, nobody ever said, whatever happens in Nazareth stays in Nazareth. It just, it wasn't that kind of of place. So this is a, an obscure woman from an obscure town. And if there's any hope in this message at all that, that, that comes, it's that she was engaged to a guy named Joseph who was of the lineage of David. Now, if you've read the Bible at all and you've studied a little bit in the Old Testament, you know that David was the second king of Israel, but the first really great king of Israel. And he was actually the king that God gave the promise that somebody from your throne is going to reign forever. We're going to come back to that in a little while. But for the time being, suffice it to say, the line of David had had no significant impact in the nation of Israel for almost 600 years. In 587, the, 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 the nation what was of Judah, which were the two southern tribes of Israel, decided that they were going to throw off the rule of the Babylonians, and they were going to go their own way. And the Babylonians had another thought, and they came, and they literally leveled Jerusalem. They literally destroyed it. There was not a brick left standing when they got done with it. And half of the population was, was wiped out by the sword. Uh, a full quarter of the population was carried off to Babylon and kept captivity, and Israel pretty much ceased to exist from that point forward. That was around 587 B.C. There was nobody from David's line sitting on a throne anywhere when this story unfolds. It, is in a revel- it seems to be in a, a, a lineage that has no relevance whatsoever. It's a line long bereft of any power or any standing of any kind whatsoever. I was doing some research this week uh, on a guy named Henry Bigelow Adams. Is there any chance at all, that he lives in Kansas City, is there any chance at all, before I go any further, anybody actually knows Henry Bigelow Adams? Nobody, I can't imagine there is, but you never know. I don't see any hands. Okay, so I'm doing some research on Henry Bigelow Adams, and he was hard to find. He's not, a, he, you know, he's, not, he's not a name with which you should be familiar. He's a kind of a middle-class guy. He's in his 70s now. They had a couple kids. But, you know, if you lived across the street from him, you'd know who he was. Maybe if you're in the Rotary Club with him, you might know who he was. Maybe, you know, maybe he plays a little golf with some guys every Thursday. You might know him that way, or maybe you knew him through work. But he really isn't a person of any significant importance except for his last name, Adams. He's the fifth, and if you count him, great, 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 great grandson of John Adams, the second president of the United States of America. He's the fourth great, 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 great grandson of John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. And he lives in obscurity in Kansas City, Missouri. So if you knew him and you got to know him a little bit, and you're sitting around dinner, you sometimes might say, hey, have you ever, have you ever gone on Ancestry.com? And he might say, funny, you should ask. <laughs> I happen to be related to that Adams. And that would be fascinating. And that would be interesting. But there aren't any politicians knocking on his door asking him to run for office right now. It's, it's an interesting yet insignificant historical fact. It's kind of common, not real important. But what I love about this introduction of the story is just that. 
Because if it's not common, if it's special, if you have to like be in the upper echelon, then I'm out of the story immediately. It has no relevance for me whatsoever because I'm just kind of a normal average guy and my family's made up of kind of normal average people. But I believe that the Spirit of God inspired Luke to make sure we knew that this is for everybody. This is for a young teenage girl that nobody even bothers to look at twice. It's for every person that ever felt marginalized, ever felt that they were common or perhaps on the outside looking in. But it's not just common. It is also divinely royal and part of an unfolding eternal plan. Look at verses 31 through 33. The angel begins to unpack for Mary the identity of this one who's going to be born to her. And in the midst of that conversation, he says, he will be great. Well, how great is he going to be? He will be called the Son of the Most High. In other words, this is going to be God in the flesh. This is our first hint that the person to whom the angel Gabriel is speaking about is the Messiah, is the one who's been promised in the Old Testament. So we go back now for just a moment to Psalm chapter 2, which is all about God's Messiah. It's all about the fact that God is going to take his son and he's going to put him on the throne and he is going to rule forever. So here are just a couple of verses out of that text. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What the angel, what Gabriel is saying to Mary is, that guy in Psalm 2, that's your son. This is a royal child, and this just isn't a royal child. This is king of kings and lord of lords type of royalty. This is the one that that all royalty begins and ends with him. But there's more to this unfolding eternal plan. This this seemingly unimportant uh, Davidic line is actually still very much intact, and God's going to keep his promise. God said to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's speaking to him and he says, your house, your descendants, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who's going to do that? Is David going to do that in his power? Clearly that didn't work out. I mean, we're we're not even 600 years uh, after after, um, uh, the fall of Jerusalem and and you'd be hard pressed to know who was of the house of David in that particular time. But God made a promise and God always keeps his promises. And God is now going to bring Messiah as he promised through the Davidic line. And this king will not fail the way David and his descendants failed. This king will rule forever. The possessions, uh, the, the ends of the earth will become his possessions. This is, again, an unfolding royal plan. But there's one other piece to this plan that the angel brings up, and that is that this line will not fail. He will reign over the house of Jacob, Gabriel says, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So let's go back to the prophet Isaiah. Let's go back to several hundred years before Jesus came and a very famous Christmas passage. This is a, we, we've studied this passage at Green Tree during the Advent season before. For to us a child is born, Isaiah says. To us a son is given. And he's looking into the future, but he's looking into the future as it's an accomplished fact because it's an accomplished fact in the mind of God. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to be establish it, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How's this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do not mistake for one moment the infant born to this unknown young woman as insignificant. This is royalty and power that is beyond our comprehension. And we get just a grasp of it. We get just a piece of it in Luke's gospel. And we begin to have the door cracked open. And if we saw all the glory of Jesus, we would all fall on the floor and cry for God to strike us dead because we would be so overwhelmed. Have you ever been in the presence of greatness and kind of lost yourself in the moment? Uh, I think I've told this story before, but there was a woman who vacationed with her family every summer uh, in Martha's Vineyard. And uh, one morning she woke up a little bit earlier than everybody else, and she's on vacation for about a month. We've got a nice little house. And she decides, you know, I'm on vacation, and I I deserve a little treat. I'm going to treat myself. I know it's early in the morning, but I'm going down to the ice cream shop, and I'm going to get a scoop of ice cream. She never went to the ice cream shop during the day. Every time she wanted ice cream, she'd think about it, but there were hundreds of people, and the line was just way too long. So it's early in the morning. Nobody's going to be in there. So she gets dressed, and she goes down to the ice cream shop, and she goes in the ice cream shop, and sure enough, it's, it's just as quiet as can be. There's one guy sitting over the corner reading a newspaper. Nobody else is in there except the person behind the counter. And they sell coffee. And so the woman says, would you like coffee? She goes, nope, I want a scoop of ice cream. And so what flavor would you like to get the flavor? And as, as the server is handing her the ice cream, the server is doing this. Like, look over in the corner. Look who's sitting over there. Like, so the woman's like, what? She goes, look, look, look over there. So she looks over there. And guess who's It's like 1965. Cool Hand Luke is sitting over there. Paul Newman is sitting over there. The brightest, most piercing blue eyes you've ever seen in your life. This drop-dead gorgeous hunk of an actor is sitting over the corner reading the newspaper. And she just kind of she just kind of falls apart. She's not sure what to do. And she looks and, and he just nods and smiles and says, Good morning. And she says, Good morning. And she tries to compose herself and she gets herself together and she and she leaves. And she can't wait to get home and tell everybody what she does. She gets about halfway home. She goes, Where's my ice cream? I forgot my ice cream. I want, I'm going back and getting my ice cream. So she goes back in and she goes to the counter. She goes, I, uh, I forgot my ice cream. Could you give me my ice cream? And the woman said, I handed you the ice cream. She handed me the ice cream. She goes, I put it right in your hand. And she's kind of doing like this. And she happens to look over. And Paul Newman looks up with this big smile and these beautiful blue eyes says, it's in your purse. <laughs> Sometimes in the presence of greatness, you kind of fall apart. <laughs> I said, Cindy, do you ever feel that way when I'm around? She's like, no, that's never really, <laughs> never really happened. But here we are with this seemingly common young woman who's going to seem to have a very poor, nobody child, except for the fact that it's part of God's unfolding eternal plan. Because God cares about the marginalized. He cares about the weak. He cares about those who seem to be left behind. So what do you do when you get this kind of information? What do you do when you learn that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming, not to crush us and tell us how bad we've been, but to redeem us and to, and to save us? You break out into song. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to, to suggest here. And that's what happens with Mary. She begins to break out into song. And so I want to make just a, a few observations about this song uh, this morning. The first is this, you can't sing what you don't believe. Have you ever tried to sing a song that you don't really like? Have you ever heard a song on the radio or, or, or on Sirius XM or whatever, and it just grates on your nerves and your thought is, I'm going to memorize that and sing it all the time. No, you can't sing it. 
because there's no melody to you. There's, it doesn't flow. The words don't, don't touch your heart. They, they make your teeth grind. But when it gets into your heart and when it gets into your soul, you want to sing. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my Savior. She personalizes it. She's going to sing the song because it's true in her heart. Is the gospel true in your heart this morning? Have you come face to face with this Redeemer, with this glorious salvation? Is your heart wanting to burst forth and write a new song? You can't sing what you don't believe. But secondly, any song that we sing here has to be, by definition, a song of praise. And so Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is her name. She personalizes, but then she says, what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm taking my song and I'm making it about him because he's the one that deserves my praise. He's the one that deserves my worship. He's the one that deserves my unmitigated attention and loyalty. And friends, we give our loyalty and our attention away to everything but Jesus, probably six days of the week. And we've got to rethink our faith. We've got to see this song for what it is. It's a call to repentance. It's a call for us to say, I don't praise God like I ought to. This isn't just about Christmas. This is about every day of my life. How can there be marginalized people all around us and we're saying we're living for the glory of God? Those two things can't go together. And so Mary breaks out in song, but she praises God. She offers glory and worship to God. But in doing so, the Holy Spirit inspires her. He, he also gives her some instruction to pass on to us. And I haven't underlined anything on this page because all of this is, is good instruction. She reminds us he has shown strength in his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In other words, you can't come to God in your pride and, and give him your list of demands. God's going to say the only way you can come is through the humility of acknowledging that you need a Savior. He's brought down the mighty. You're not strong enough to save yourself. From the third throne and the exalted ones, uh, exalted those uh, who are humble. A state, why? Because in humility, you acknowledge you need a Savior. You need someone to redeem you. Yeah, instead of sitting on the throne of your life, like I so often do, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take control of this. Instead of realizing and listening to this instruction, my, my estate is humble and spiritually, and I need to remember that every day in order that I would give glory to God because he's filled the hungry with good things. There's some great instruction in this song. Fourthly, I've got five observations about the song. Fourthly, this is a song about the past, the present, and the future. Let's think about the past, and I mentioned this at the baptism this morning, that, that Mary speaks about this promise that God spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. Mary's going back a couple thousand years, and she's remembering that God made a promise to save, and now she's right smack dab in the middle of it. She's going to be part of the process. Do you understand that that's where you are this morning as a disciple of Jesus? Do you understand that you're right smack dab in the middle of the process? That God's created you the way he's created you because he knows there are people that you can touch for the kingdom of God, that only you can touch for the kingdom of God because of your personality, because of where you live, because of the family, which you're born, the job you have. Mary points to this eternal promise and reminds us that what God has said in the past is going to come to fruition. And so she speaks to the present, verses 48 and 49. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
for he who is mighty has done great things for me. What has God done for Mary up to this point? One thing and one thing only. He's made a promise. She's not pregnant yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come upon her yet. She hasn't given birth to Jesus. The shepherds haven't shown up. The angel choir hasn't come and sing. The wise men haven't wandered into town. They haven't gone to Egypt. They haven't come back to Egypt. They haven't had Jesus grow up and then lose him at the temple and then find him again. They haven't seen Jesus become a man and and go into his earthly ministry and begin to heal and begin to teach and go to the cross and be crucified and then be raised from the dead. None of that has happened yet. The only thing God's done is he said, I'm going to make my promise good and I'm going to do it through you. And yet she says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. She understands that this God is the God of the present. And then ultimately, she speaks to the future. And he says this, he's looked on as the humble state of a servant, for behold, now all generations will call me blessed. And then at the very bottom, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We were in the future when Mary wrote this, and I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. He hasn't shared that information with me, but it it could be another 2,000 years. Who knows? But every generation will hear the gospel. Every generation will understand the faithfulness of God. And so part of who we are at Green Tree is a forward-looking people. We we celebrate what God's done at Green Tree in our first 21 years, and that's great. We should celebrate it. But brothers and sisters, it's now time to look forward. It's now time to say, what's God going to do next? And how can we follow him into that? How can we be part of that process? Because the story's not done. It hasn't been written to completion yet, and we're part of it. Our God is a God of the future. Therefore, if I could say anything about this song, I would just put it this way. It's a song for everybody. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. The requirement for being part of this amazing story is simply that we believe. That we come to Christ in faith. So what do we do with this passage this morning? Well, as I said, there are two questions when you think about being marginalized. The one is, there are times when we feel insignificant. When we feel that that everybody else is important, but somehow the world has missed us. And there's certainly people in our community that feel that way, feel that way for, for good and legitimate reasons. Do we understand first and foremost before we can go and serve them and care for them and even care for those in our midst that, that feel that way, that we need to embrace our significance through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I understand that I'm loved eternally by God, that Jesus is that demonstration of God's mercy and grace for me? Have I made up mine through faith? If I have, then ultimately, what, however people marginalize me is not as important because God has given me his significance. But then secondly, and as we've kind of alluded to throughout the sermon, my significance in Christ Jesus is meant to be shared. It's not meant to be hoarded. It's not meant to be held on to and, and, and kept close. It's meant to be given away freely. And if there are marginalized in my community, if there are people that live around me that feel as if they're insignificant, one of the opportunities I have through the gospel of Jesus Christ is to share the love and the dignity that the gospel brings. And we're called to that individually as disciples, and we're called to that collectively as a community of believers. May, we, may it be said of us that we are believers in Jesus who understood that there are people, even within our own midst, that feel marginalized. That, that have experienced a feeling of insignificance and that that's not okay with us. 
that we want the gospel to permeate that in our congregation, but also that we would be a people that would take the significance of Jesus Christ into the world and would share it with others for his glory. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we bless your name this morning. This, this story is the introduction uh, to your larger story. We thank you that you came. You humbled yourself. You became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that the marginalized, so that the insignificant, according to the, to the, the measuring stick of this world, could have an eternal hope and an eternal home. Lord Jesus, for those of us who have been saved by your grace this morning, who are your disciples here, who are seeking to follow you, uh, give us a renewed spirit of understanding of, of how significant we are in you. And then, Lord Jesus, don't let us rest or feel at all comfortable until we share it with others. We pray in your name. Amen.